The Bible contains some of the greatest introductions to literature, in my opinion, in all of literary history. Introductions really matter. One of the things that's made the Star Wars franchise so renowned is that great introduction right before every single movie a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And then boom, and then up comes rolling the screen. Like people remember that, they think of that. Introductions matter. And the introductions to some of our biblical books, I would argue, challenge all literature in any genre throughout any history of the world. John 1 comes to mind, for example. What greater introduction is there than the beginning of John chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we could continue, continue on. I've also always considered Hebrews 1 to be one of my favorite literary introductions. I love the beginning of Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in sundry ways, God spoke to us through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he, he created the world. And we could go on and on and on. Long ago, at many times, in many ways. In the beginning was the word. We have these very famous introductions. And I would argue that our text this morning needs to be considered in the competition, if you will, for one of those great book introductions. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 is one of the greatest prologues we have in all of our Bibles. It's one of the strongest, deepest, most beautiful introductions. And it's a privilege that we have this morning to be able to hear it and to study it over the coming week. So would you please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14. And I'm going to do something that we haven't actually done here before, just as I've been thinking about the amazing introduction we have here and the privilege we have to hear the Word of God, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of the Word today. Would you please stand? Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. If you would follow along, please, for these are the very words of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. It's very difficult to know how to preach the passage that we just read because it is so deep and yet so unified. 
Every single sentence of what we just read is packed with so much rich theological meaning. Sometimes I wonder if I could preach a whole sermon series on every sentence by itself. The, 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 the sentences are so packed full of theology, I'm tempted to break this down and preach one single sentence every week. That's how deep and rich this passage is. Yet at the same time, there's a unity to this passage that screams don't do that. There's a unity here. Every single sentence just flows into the next so well and is so well connected that you really can't itemize it like that. You need to see it as this unit. You need to see it as this big, long passage. An interesting thing, probably the best way we have to showcase the incredible unity in verses 3 through 14 is that in the Greek, it's one sentence. One sentence. Paul wrote one sentence. Now, I'm going to admit to you, because I'm not a Greek scholar, I don't know how we know that, but I can just tell you that every single commentary, every single Greek scholar I've ever read comment on this has affirmed that. So I'm sort of basing this argument off authority here that in Greek, this was all one single sentence. The English translators, because that's really bad English, have gone in and added periods and commas and stuff. But Paul didn't do that. This was one thought, one sentence, one introduction. And so you see that there's a depth to this, but there's also a unity to this that really makes it hard to know how to preach. Do we break this down or do we preach it as a unit? And so because the text seems to demand both, I'm actually going to do both. It's not common practice for me, but I think that a text like this demands it. So today we are going to just preach from a very broad structural perspective, 3 through 14, and then the coming weeks we're going to break it down into smaller sections. So don't panic if we rush through something and you, what does that mean? I want to know more about that. We're, we're going to get to that, but I think we need to take this one long run-on sentence and just see it from a bird's eye perspective. And in my opinion, one of the most beautiful things that we see from sort of 10,000 feet, if you will, is the Trinitarian component to this section. It's clearly a passage about our salvation. The text begins with the Apostle Paul blessing God the Father for our salvation. So it's a text about salvation. But what you have to see is the Trinitarian structure of our salvation. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you caught it as we were reading through, but the song we just sang is a song based on Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, and it borrows from this structure. The first verse is about the Father, the second verse was about the Son, and the third verse was about the Spirit, and how that all unites in a common plan and common salvation. And that's exactly how Paul structured this great introduction. One way to think about it is Paul has given us a crash course in what we call the economic trinity. It's a crash course in what we call the economic trinity. When theologians talk about the trinity, there's two primary ways in which we can talk about the trinity. There's the imminent trinity versus the economic trinity. The imminent trinity versus the economic trinity. Now, we are by no means saying there are two different trinities. We're just talking about two different ways, two different angles of looking at the trinity. When theologians talk about the imminent trinity, they're talking about what the trinity is. They're talking about who God is. Who is God? What is God? What is the trinity? That is the imminent trinity. The economic trinity is looking at what the trinity does. What does the Trinity do? Eminent is what is the Trinity? 
And economic is what does the Trinity do? In other words, when we're talking about the economic Trinity, what we're really asking is what is the individual mission and purpose of each member of the Trinity? Once we've established through the imminent Trinity that the one God consists in three persons, we ask that question, what are the differentiating roles of each of those persons? That's the economic Trinity. What role in your salvation does each of the members play? And the second you ask that question, you're now doing an exercise in the economic Trinity. What does the Trinity do. And here, Paul gives us, at least as it pertains to salvation, a very brief crash course in how all three members of the Trinity are vital to your salvation. All three members of the Trinity are vital to your salvation. Let's see that, and let's begin, as we always do in the Trinity, with the Father. The Father is the hierarchy of the Trinity. He is first. He is the first person, Father, Spirit, Son. Let us begin with the Father, which is where Paul begins Verses 3 through 6. Would you read those with me again? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Paul begins this text by reminding us that before you were even created, your salvation technically began. Your salvation was in process before you even were created. Before the foundation of the world was laid, God the Father chose to save you. He chose to create you and save you. It is He who chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. It was in love that He predestined us for adoption to Himself. He chose He was going to adopt you before He even made you. The plan of salvation, in other words, is all credited to God the Father. It's His plan. Your salvation was the Father's decision. He chose that for you. It's an outflow of his love for you. In love, he predestined us for adoptions. Out of love, he predestined to adopt you into his family. It is he, Paul says, who has blessed you through Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He is the father of all blessings. All good things come from God the Father. And the primary good thing that has come from him is his choice before he even made you to save you. He decided to bring you into his family, to make you holy and to save you. This was his choice, which is again, who are we praising in verse 3? It's very specific. It's not God in general. Blessed be the God and Father of Christ. Who's Jesus' God? Who's Christ's Father? The Father. The Father chose to save you. One of the reasons why you're saved is because God the Father loved you and chose you. That's a vital role that He plays in your salvation. But then we have sort of a little bit of a transition at the end of 6 as he says over and over again how all of the, the plan of, of God the Father is all happening, being accomplished in and through the beloved. And then he reminds us of the role that that beloved plays in our salvation. Being chosen isn't enough. 
That's why you're not born saved. It's not enough to be chosen. And this is the part that the son plays. Look with me at verse 7. Referring back to the beloved, who is Jesus in verse the end of verse 6, verse 7 says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Our redemption comes through the blood of Christ. Jesus' role in your salvation is to redeem you. He's the one who purchases your soul. He's the one who pays the price for your soul. He's the one who washed your sins away. He is your redeemer. He spilled his blood for you. The Father did not die for you. The Holy Spirit did not die for you. It was the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who alone took on flesh, stood in your place, and purchased you at such a great price. His own life. Jesus Christ laid down his life for your salvation. That's his role. You see, without a payment for sins, God's predestining plan would be thwarted. God's justice could never allow himself to adopt you if you were a rebellious sinner. The only way for God's plan of predestination to actually take place is if someone deals with your sins, and that's what Christ Jesus did. You see, it was out of love and submission to his Father that he helped accomplish the plan of his Father by dealing with your sins and making you adoptable. You are not saved by God's choice alone. You are saved by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the one who has dealt with your sin and fixed your broken nature. He has restored your nature. Jesus is your Redeemer who paid for your sins. But the text doesn't stop with two persons of the Trinity. It brings in the Spirit as well. Look with me in verses 13 through 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Now, we know from many other texts in the Bible what roles the Spirit plays in our salvation. We're told in Scripture that He opens up our eyes to the gospel, that He's the one who applies the redemptive work of Christ to us. He's the one who empowers us to perseverance and godliness. But here, Paul focuses specifically on the Spirit's role as a seal and guarantee. He is a seal and guarantee. The Spirit seals us and provides us with the hope of God's promise. The Spirit is the one who gives us the assurance that we actually are redeemed, that we actually are adopted. The Spirit is God's proof and vindication to you that you're elect, that you're redeemed, and that an inheritance is coming to you. And that's why He also serves as your guarantee. If you have the Spirit, your inheritance is guaranteed. It's God's down payment, His promise to you. You see, it is the Spirit who gives us an objective hope and assurance that we belong to God, that we are redeemed by God. By the way, you see this all throughout the book of Acts. One of the primary arguments the apostles used to, to teach the Jews that the Gentiles belong to the covenant family of God was the argument of the Spirit. And it was convincing. The Jews would say things like, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess they are saved. I mean, they received the Spirit just like we did. 
How does someone receive the Spirit if they're not saved, if they're not adopted, if they're not loved by Christ? The Spirit is our proof and vindication, our seal that, yes, I'm a child of God. I belong to Him. This is the focus of our passage. The role the Trinity plays in accomplishing the plan of salvation for the Christian church. And that's why our primary takeaway from this passage when we see it as a whole is this. This is, this is the thesis, the summary statement I would give from verse 3 to 14. This is what I want you to take away from today's sermon. Your salvation is accomplished by the triune God. Your salvation is accomplished by the triune God. And now that we have seen this in the text, we have seen our triune salvation, the economic trinity, how every member of the trinity plays a vital and important role in our salvation. We've established that we are saved by a triune God. I want us to take away three inferences from this. What does this mean for us? How does this affect the way I think, the way I live when I come out here? Here are some three crucial inferences from this great truth that you are saved by a triune God. The first inference, inference, forgive me, is this. Modalism is false. When you leave this room, you need to reject modalism. What do I mean by that? Christians are monotheists, which means we believe that there's only one God. But there are different ways that different religions understand the unity of God. There are different kinds of monotheists, for example. Christians are Trinitarian monotheists. We believe there is only one God, but that one God subsists in three co-equal and co-eternal persons. But there are other monotheists who reject that, and they're called Unitarians. They're not Trinitarians, it's not tri, three persons, but Unitarians, uni, one, single person. These would be like Muslims and Jews. Muslims believe there's only one God, Jews believe there's only one God, but they reject the tri-personal nature of God. Christians are Trinitarians, not Unitarians. And most Unitarians reject the Bible outright. If you meet a Unitarian, very often they, are just, they just reject the Bible, they reject Christianity, because they at least have the decency and honesty to admit that the Bible is not a Unitarian book. But the problem is there is a group, and unfortunately in America it's a prominent group, of Unitarians who try to take on the Christian label. They say they believe the Bible, they say they're Bible-believing Christians, but they deny the Trinity and they affirm a Unitarian understanding of God in the Bible, and they are today known as modalists. Historically, they were called Sabellians. They were, this, this worldview was denounced by the Christian church hundreds of years ago as the followers of Sibelius, but it has reincarnated, if you will, today under the name of modalism. And modalists maintain that there is only one person in the one being of God, but that this one single person will sometimes manifest in different forms or different modes. And that's where the name modalism comes from. So they see that there's only one person in God, but sometimes that one person puts on his father hat. And then he takes it off, and then sometimes he puts on his sun hat. And then he takes it off, and then sometimes he puts on his spirit hat. So there's one God, one person, but he is sometimes the Father, sometimes the Son, and sometimes the Spirit. So they would say the Spirit is God, the Son is God, the Father is God, but what they mean by that is there's only one person who is playing different roles. 
Typically, a modalist will give you an analogy, something like this. I am a one individual being, and I'm also one person. I'm not like God. I'm not Trinitarian. I'm Unitarian. I'm one person. But I have different roles to play in my life. For example, I'm a pastor. But I'm also a husband. And I'm also a father. So sometimes I'm father calling. Sometimes I'm pastor calling. And sometimes I am husband, Colin. But there's only one person who's taking on these different roles. That's the modalistic view of God. There's one God who sometimes is the Father, who sometimes is the Son, who sometimes is the Spirit. And now that we've established that definition, I hope you see that you cannot read Ephesians 1 that way. You simply cannot read verses 3 through 14 with modalistic presuppositions. The persons here are interacting together and yet are distinguished from each other in very, very important ways. I mean, read verse 3 with me again. Blessed be who? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How can this be the case if there's no way of distinguishing between Father and Son? Maybe the better question to ask is how can a father be his own son? Is God the father also his own son? No. Ephesians 3 says there is some kind of distinction between father and son. The son has a father. That's why we call him son and we call the father father. There's a distinction to be made between these two. And they interact together just like a father and son interact together. So it's not like in history he was once a father and now he's a son, but they are together father and son. The same goes for the Spirit in verse 13. In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So again, we have a distinction being made between the person you believe in and the person who seals you. You cannot read Ephesians 1 modalistically. Ephesians 1 can only be read Trinitarian. And so a Trinitarian salvation means just that. What's the inference? That our God is triune. So reject non-Trinitarian views of God. That's our first inference. Here's our second inference. What's, what's something, how, how is one of the ways your mind can be changed in your understanding of your religion now that we have established that we are saved by the triune God. Here's a second inference. God has a plan for the world. Believe it or not, these two things follow. These two things connect. You are saved by the triune God. A consequence of that is that God has a plan for the whole world. That sounds like they don't fit together, but they do. There's a very logical connection here. You see, that our salvation requires the entire trinity reveals that it's eternal. Now, I'm not saying you are eternally saved. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you were born saved. You were not born saved. You were born a child of wrath. But the plan of salvation has always been in the eternal mind of God. So God's plan for salvation is an eternal plan that has always existed along with the all-knowing, eternal God. So whenever we see salvation playing out in history... As God continues to grow his church and save his church, we know now what's going on. That God is merely accomplishing in time what he decided to accomplish outside of time beforehand. We are seeing the eternal plan of God play out in time. A Trinitarian salvation teaches us that God is executing a plan. He's not shooting from the hip. He's not rolling with the punches. He's not making adjustments on the fly. 
Our Trinitarian salvation is proof that God is in control of human history. By the way, if you think that I'm making a logical leap here, I want to show you Paul makes this very connection. Paul says as much. Look at how he concludes in verse, well, I was going to say verse 11, but let's begin in verse 9 through 11. See the way Paul begins by talking about the salvation of the church. God who has blessed us in Christ with spiritual blessings, predestined us in him, we have redemption. The whole first part of the passage is about salvation of the church, but then he immediately moves on to this much broader plan for human history. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. What Paul is telling us here is that the salvation of the Christian church is only a large and important part of God's ultimate plan for all of human history. God doesn't just have a plan for the church and then he just leaves the world to do. I don't know what the world's going to do. We'll see what happens with the rest of them. I got a plan for this people. I've got a plan for this group. But who knows what's going to happen to the rest of them. No, the plan of the church is a key component of God's plan to unite all things together in Christ. To work all things after the counsel of his will. All things exist to unfold in the glory of God through his son, Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is answering this big philosophical question. Why are we here? Why is there something rather than nothing? I saw a clip just the other day. It's an old clip. I don't know why it got recycled again. But an old clip of a comedian, Ricky Gervais, on a talk show host. And the talk show host had to ask because he's a famous atheist. Right? Why is there something rather than nothing? Why are we here? What's the purpose? Well, we have a broad answer to that question. This might not give you all the specifics you're looking for. But Paul has an answer to that question. We are all here as part of a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ. We have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You exist to bring glory to God. That's why you're here. All things exist to in some way, shape, or form, oftentimes beyond our comprehension, to bring glory to God. And this all is the inference Paul has drawn from a Trinitarian salvation. That our salvation is part of a plan according to him who has a plan for all things. Not just you. He has a plan for all things. He leaves nothing to chance. He leaves nothing to the freedom of men to decide for him. But he holds the reins of the universe and he is steering it where he wants it to go. And that direction is toward the exaltation of his son. God is leading this historical horse right to the exaltation of Christ Jesus the Lord. We serve the sovereign God, the Lord who reigns above the heavens, and as the Psalms say, does whatever he pleases. And by the way, as a quick rabbit trail before we move on, it's important to remember as we're setting up for the rest of the book, something we talked about last week. You can see how Paul's high view of God's plan of salvation is laying a very important foundation for the theme we discussed last week of Gentile inclusion. And let me just briefly explain that. When we see in the New Testament this apparent shift of salvation, where once God's people was an ethnic people, a national people, it was for Israel, it was not for the Gentiles, and then all of a sudden Christ comes and it's like this big global mission, like save the world, the Gentiles included, you're all equal. 
from a human perspective, doesn't it kind of look like God pivoted? Like he changed his mind? Like he made some adjustment? Things weren't going according to plan, so he needs to, he needs to mix it up a little bit. He had to make some halftime adjustments because the opponent was doing things he wasn't expecting. Did God change his plan of salvation? You see, what Paul is establishing for the Gentiles, which is, by the way, I don't know your family history, but probably most of these people in this room, your salvation was not plan B. You were not a backup plan. You were not an afterthought. You were not, as some say, the only reason you were saved was to make Israel jealous so that more Israelites could save. You're not a tool for Israel. You were chosen before the foundation of the world. God did not change his mind when he decided to include you. He didn't fix a plan he messed up. This has all been going according to plan. So why would the Jewish people think they're more special, more important, that their salvation is primary to the Gentile people when all of us were merely chosen before the foundation of the world? You see the way that equalizes our salvation? It lays this incredibly important point that God is not a reactive God. He has not left the fate of the world to free human creatures and then he just does his best to follow along behind us and clean up our messes. He does not. In other words, here's how I like to think of it. We are a part of God's plan. He is not trying to fit into ours. Okay? We are a part of God's plan. He's not trying his best to fit into ours. The history of the world is not ultimately being decided by mankind. And God's just trying his best to redeem it and work himself into it. This is God's history. This is God's world. A Trinitarian salvation means that God has a plan for all of creation and an ability to accomplish it. He has a plan that he can accomplish. Our final inference, what do we learn from the fact that we are saved by the triune God? This is perhaps the most important thing I want you to take away today. That's why I ended with this. The most important thing. At the end of the sermon, we're going to sing a new song, and it's because it just fit this message so well. So if you take nothing else from today, take away inference number three. The Lord is your salvation. The Lord is your salvation. That our salvation is triune should remind us of this important truth that God is wholly and entirely responsible for your salvation. Now, this is not to say you don't make a personal choice to believe. The text clearly affirms in verse 13 that you're not saved until you believe. So yes, you must put your faith in Jesus Christ to be saved. Again, you're not born saved. But the point is that your faith is not ultimately the grounds of your salvation. God does not save you because of your faith. He's not rewarding your faith with salvation. Your salvation is not the grounds, or faith is not the grounds of salvation. Faith is what gives you access to salvation, but your faith is not the grounds of salvation. God is the grounds of your salvation. He's the one who accomplished it. He saved you. Your faith didn't save you. Your faith gives you access to salvation, but God saved you. First, keep in mind that your faith is only the outcome of the love of God who first predestined you to adoption. We love because he first loved us. Secondly, your faith is only effectual because of the redemption accomplished in Christ Jesus. 
Apart from Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, your faith would avail you nothing. Imagine if Jesus decided not to go to the cross, he skipped Calvary, and went home. What do you have to believe in? You can believe in anything all you want, and it will avail you nothing. Because there's no redemption, there's no forgiveness of your sins. You see, faith is not what makes you saved. God makes you saved. Your faith is a part of God's plan. Your faith clings to the redemption that is in Christ. And lastly, your faith would never persevere without the guarantee and hope of the Spirit who indwells you. It is He who gives you a surety of salvation and a power to sustain belief. Without the Spirit, you would never see the goodness of God, and if you did, you wouldn't hold on to it. So you see, you are not ultimately saved by your faith. The Lord is your salvation. You are saved by, in, through, and for God. He accomplished it, right? He chose you. He redeemed you. He sealed you. Salvation is of the Lord. This is why one of the famous models of the Reformation was soli deo gloria. And that soli part is very important there. Glory to God alone. Are you looking to give someone glory for your salvation? There's only one person who deserves it. God and God alone. Glory to God alone, for He alone is our salvation. Your faith is not your salvation. Your works are not your salvation. Your Christian upbringing is not your salvation. Your church is not your salvation. Your Reformed theology is not your salvation. Your God is your salvation. So if you're looking for something to do with all of that gratitude, all of that thankfulness that swelled up inside your hearts as you read through Ephesians 1. If you're looking for something to do with all that gratitude and all that thankfulness, do exactly what Paul does in verse 3. Give it to God. Look no further than to God himself. Pour out all of your thanks, giving all of your gratitude upon the Lord. Look to God alone. Pour out your praise and your thankfulness upon him. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Father. Praise Son. Praise the Holy Ghost. 